So welcome to Biohackers Podcast. This is our first episode in English. We've been doing this work for uh, a year now in Finnish, and it was just about time for Biohackers Summit that's going to happen in Helsinki, Finland on the 23rd, the 24th of September to do this um, in English. And uh, we we are going to interview a number of guests from Biohackers Summit. Uh, today we are going to have Dr. Max Moore, but also Ben Greenfield from Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast is coming along, as well as Katal Gurin, who's been doing self-tracking for nine years. So there's a lot of interesting interviews coming along. So subscribe to the podcast and and um, follow what biohacking is all about. So um, just let's get straight to the interview. So today I'm interviewing Dr. Max Moore. He's a strategic philosopher and the CEO of Alcor Life Extension Foundation that deals with cryonics. Uh, he's a co-founder of the Entropy Institute, and he has written a number Extropy of... Entropy Institute. Ex, Extropy Institute. Extropy. He's, he's, he's written a number of uh, seminal papers on uh, uh, the transhumanist uh, philosophy and um, uh, already since uh, 1990s and uh, has been sort of central in pioneering the transhumanist movement. And um, he has also been teaching philosophy at University of South uh, California and uh, definitely considering his day job now uh, uh, in cryonics, um, his uh, dissertation that also uh, touched the nature of death would be uh, definitely interesting. So here we have Max Moore. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So would you like to expand a little bit uh, from uh, your background? So how, how did you get interested in all this uh, transhumanism and life extension and super longevity? Yeah, I've been asked that question so many times and I still don't have a very good answer because uh, it's hard to explain. Um, you know, some people say, oh, there's this book I came across one day and it just changed my whole way of thinking. Uh, or my parents brought me up, or my friends had these ideas. But I really can't think of anything like that. It was almost as if I was born <laughs> born a transhumanist, like there's a transhumanist gene. Because from the earliest ages I can think of, I was always fascinated by the idea of overcoming limits. Um, you know, as I like to tell people, when I was five years old, I watched the Apollo 11 moon landing, and I watched every space launch after that. And I was fascinated by the idea of getting beyond the gravity well, getting out into space, building space colonies, expanding life beyond Earth. Um, I was always interested by the idea of living longer. Uh, from well before I stopped growing, I started taking supplements and was really thinking seriously about life extension. Um, I also wanted to figure out how to overcome biological limits. Uh, it seemed to me that the fact that our human bodies are sort of frail and age uh, damaged easily and our brains don't really work that well, we're pretty stupid really. Um, that was unsatisfactory to me. So I initially, my early years, when I was you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, I was all kinds of different approaches that were really non-scientific. I looked at transcendental meditation. I looked at different kinds of religion. I looked at uh, what you might call the occult or new age, depending on where you are, um, you know, psychic stuff. And as I developed critical, critical thinking skills, decided none of that really seemed to work. So I started realizing, well, maybe science and technology are the way to go. So I started looking at those. But all those years, there's the same basic drive, which the term extropy neatly encompasses, is the, the drive to overcome human limits, to become something more than just human, not to accept our lot as given by evolution. Hmm. <clears throat> so just to 
clarify a little bit. Um, did you grow up with technology? So were your parents or in any way involved with all this technology? technology? Not in the least. No, my mother was a um, essentially a, a, a secretary, personal assistant, or secretary. My father, um, well, I say my father, my biological father. I don't know, but uh, my the father who raised me until he died when I was eleven was um, originally a you know, builder, became a construction site manager. So absolutely zero technology, you know, zero, uh, actually very little academic background. Um, apart from my mother's father, nobody in my family before me had even been to university, let alone <laughs> to go to Oxford. So uh, again, it's kind of very strange. It's hard to explain environmentally how I came to form these interests. Um, just a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, just reaching out and seeing the ideas out there in the world through books primarily and uh, discovering what the real possibilities were. Having such a like systemic view on the human enterprise, like uh, looking at the human body almost like something you can upgrade or improve or, or sustain uh, for periods that are not necessarily normal or natural like like people would perhaps approach this topic although they are definitely something in our nature that we can can extend and we can apply our knowledge and understanding of how things work in uh in our own benefit i mean that's how what we have been doing for the whole industrial revolution as well i mean technology enabled us to have more time and um, have better infrastructure to to do what we do, like the whole healthcare system, and um, basically food and logistics and everything. That just lets us, you know, focus on thinking and, and creating things. Um, but why would you go on the side of philosophy instead of engineering, uh, building things? I think it's just a matter of of where my natural talents lie. Um, I'm not actually very good at sitting down and focusing on uh, a lot of the tiny details that I might need to work on equations in physics or advanced mathematics or engineering. I tend to be better at you know, big picture thinking, um, organizing, that kind of thing. So that's really where my, my talents lay. Uh, my first big interest, apart from you know, the future in general and learning bits and pieces of technology, my first real interest was economics. Um, that was something that really appealed to me because it was a, a very systematic way of understanding human behavior. And so I really studied that in great depth when I was you know, 15, 16, 17. And then as I got to university level, I started losing interest because it became obviously more of an academic game. It became something where, where economists wanted to be mathematicians or physicists. They would write these long papers full of equations that really related to nothing in the real world. And I think, fortunately, a lot of scientists and the social sciences fall into that trap. So it, it seemed to be no longer relevant. So uh, instead, I started asking more generally, well, okay, I'm studying the role of the economy, government, and finance, but why do we have the government we have? What justifies that? What justifies taxation? What justifies the government having these powers over us? And so I started thinking more about political philosophy. And as I thought about political philosophy, that drove me into ethics, and that drove me into metaphysics, and into epistemology, and all those other areas that kind of flower out from that. So um, uh, technology itself, or, or scientific research, yeah, you might say, why aren't you doing scientific research? Why aren't you studying how to extend on human lifespan? Well, probably because I wouldn't be that good at it. There's other people who do a better job. So I'm trying to focus on my strengths, which are really organizing, forming the big picture, and understanding more the social side of things. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. 
that you brought up the economics and so on. I was just thinking when I was having a flight back from uh, from Hungary uh, uh, yesterday that uh, if you think of like the nation state uh, at that level, you know, problems are easily solved with nuclear weapons <laughs> between uh, and, and it's it's all about the boundaries and the territories and collecting taxes and so on. It was natural for the enterprise or the company to emerge as a more, um, you could even say, uh, more advanced uh, structure uh, for solving and dealing with problems. Today's companies and enterprises are international electronic organisms that just, you know, spread their tentacles around everywhere and they run on capital. And uh, for an enterprise to be trusted and to work with them and do business, uh, it's all about stability. It's it's not about threatening others uh, around you uh, with other than new products. Uh, and it, it's all about winning uh, the interest of, of the global markets. So it's, it's definitely interesting how we are sort of societies we are um, we are coming up with new structures to reorganize the uh, resources that we have I think it was Buckminster Fuller who devised this kind of uh, number for uh, how uh, how we uh, are able to harness the resources of the planet so if number one is that we can completely harness the power uh, and, and resources of, of, of this little planet we are at um, so an estimation was that it's sort of we are at 0 0.7 so we are sort of gearing towards being more energy efficient and more efficient in utilizing our resources and i see that that is now expanding to the human being as well so we start to look at ourselves how do we you know make the most out of this uh, piece of uh, meat sack that we are we sit in um and exactly there's a time when you know for hundreds of years especially since you know bacon and the scientific method we begin to systematically alter the external environment but only really in the very last few years or a couple of decades have we started to think seriously about the possibilities of altering the internal environment and of course we're still doing it in a very crude way with pharmaceuticals and implants um but we, we can expect a, a revolution of the same kind of the industrial revolution where we'll hack our bodies and then re-engineer ourselves and a lot of people still find that disturbing and odd and unnatural, but clearly it's not unnatural. It's what we've always done. It's just that we've always done it to the outside world, and we haven't had the tools to do it internally. But now, as, as you've been saying, we're beginning to develop that technology. So there's nothing remotely unnatural about biohacking or re-engineering the human being. It's just a matter of doing it carefully and cautiously, obviously. Absolutely. And uh, thinking of information that is like... The the stuff that we deal with today, information society, uh, that that was basically uh, invented or or formulated as a term in in Japan. I think it was in the it was in the seventies, sixties, or something, when they were looking at how can we build a society for for a society for which its gross product most of it comes from uh, immaterial products and information. Mm -hmm. That that's how they come came up with that term. And now information is becoming primary. Uh, there is companies that are purely working in an immaterial world like Google, which is now reorganized as Alphabet. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at the human body, even we are information. It's now DNA that wants to replicate forward. It's in the electro electric signals in our nervous system. It's in the chemical messengers. Uh, 
between ourselves. Uh, it's in our communication. It's um, uh, it is sort of uh, something that we definitely now that we explored what is outside, uh, and and we applied that to agriculture and industrial revolution. We now have a new revolution that's going to happen on a human level in a very very concrete way and direct way. So how do you uh, how would you think about the human sort of uh, enterprise, sort of like a machinery that is uh, possible to upgrade and, uh, uh, and, and see as, as everything that's outside? Well, I wrote a letter, um, I guess 1999, something called The Letter to Mother Nature, which is pretty easy to find if you Google it, which was uh, given at a, uh, an Extropy Institute conference in Berkeley. And in that, I kind of wrote this polite letter to Mother Nature as a, you know, as a kind of a symbol saying, thank you for all the wonderful things you've done for us. Thank you for these amazing bodies of trillions of cells that cooperate and work and allow us to live. Uh, but, you know, we've come to an age where we have to take over Mother. You know, we've grown up and it's time for us to take charge and to make some redesigns. And then it goes on basically to list uh, uh, a set of sort of demands, basically. Again, it's, it's all kind of metaphorical, but these are things that we need to change about ourselves. The fact that we expire and you know, we age and die and expire is just completely unacceptable. Nature did that because there was no reason for evolution to build human bodies that would last indefinitely. It takes a lot more uh, feedback, a lot more self-repair, a lot more difficulty to have something that's self-sustaining. It's like trying to keep a car that's 60 years old in good repair. Well, you can do it, but it takes some work. And nature had no interest in doing that beyond the age of childbearing. That doesn't mean that we have no interest in doing that. So, uh, yeah, we're beginning to do that. Uh, we have that capability. And in fact, I think it's contrary to what some bioethicists say, it's not only not wrong, it's the right thing to do. This is kind of a moral opportunity. I wouldn't say an obligation because I don't really, I'm not a big believer in, in obligations. I'm not really, that's not really my moral system that people are obligated or must do things. But I think it's a moral opportunity to do better that it's kind of lazy for us to sit here just as stay human beings with all our flaws and warts, with our tendencies to, to hate people who are different from us and to go to battle with them and to kill them and to harm them um, and to suffer bouts of rage and depression and anxiety. That's just lazy. And it's a bad excuse to say, oh, but it's natural and it's God's will and it gives our lives meaning. You know, that's just nonsense. That's just a terrible rationalization. It's really our opportunity and our moral responsibility, if anything, to, to, to use our intelligence and to apply it to ourselves cautiously, obviously, to take some precautions not to go nuts, uh, but to upgrade ourselves. I think that's actually a very good thing to do. Hmm. So basically, we have this, uh, we have the resource, we have the opportunity right now to do something that wasn't necessarily possible on this planet before. And uh, it would be lazy not to go for it. So what, what would you say to someone who is saying that uh, things are too complex for us humans to understand and would if it's it's already what we see uh, in china they modified the hu human embryo they wanted to treat an uncurable uh, disease that uh, you, you could be born with uh, while the while the child is still as an embryo and uh, it created side effects they it created things that they didn't expect so they modified mm -hmm. they fix one thing and suddenly something else happens elsewhere because the whole system is not mapped out and it's not understood on, on its entirety so what would you say to someone who is you know saying that hey come on it's uh, it's too complex uh, world we still don't understand it we just discovered that the lymphic system actually extends to the brain and that there is uh, there is channels for that also in in the in there. So, 
um, and and that uh, that have been hidden from science for 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 decades now. So, right. Well, how do we know this? Well, because we went ahead and tried something. Uh, the thing about the, the kind of objection is, well, yes, things are very complex. Things are a lot more complex than we know. And you know, as the common saying is, the more we learn, the more we learn that we don't know. Well, how do we learn? We don't learn just by sitting and contemplating. So philosophy alone is not enough. Uh, we have to have research. Uh, that means sometimes trying things with uncertain outcomes. And that's just the way it is. Um, Steven Pinker, the, the, uh, the writer, did a column just a couple of days ago on bioethics. And he made you know, a point that I, I thought was very good. Really, he, he was saying that you know, all these bioethicists seem to do, well, 99% of bioethicists are always saying, stop, slow down, don't do this. Let's have a committee. Let's wait for a couple of decades. Well, no, because people are dying in the meantime. People are suffering and dying in the millions. And they seem to ignore that side of, side of things. So I think rather than the precautionary principle, which is basically saying don't try anything for the first time, which really means we can never make any progress, let's throw that out. Let's use something more like the proactionary principle. We can only learn by doing. Now, yes, we can plan ahead a little bit. We can try and understand systems. We can run simulations where possible. And those are going to get better and better. We'll have better and better in silico simulations to look for side effects. Um, and we get better at monitoring systems. We'll begin to monitor things even on an individual neuronal level to see what's happening. So maybe we can intervene sooner if there is an unforeseen side effect. But yes, there will be problems. There will be. There's, there's no doubt about that. There's no point denying that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't go ahead cautiously in making progress. Otherwise, we will never learn. That, that, that's something that has to be accepted and understood. There is no perfect world. There is no risk-free world. That doesn't exist. And there's no reason to think it ever will exist. But that's not an excuse for doing nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's very well put. So, so I mean, the experiment is key. It's in the center of learning anything. And uh, how can you know if you don't try? That's definitely. And in, in science, there is this term serendipity. And a lot of uh, inventions have actually come out of experiments uh, as a side effect. So you were searching for something else and you discovered something totally different. Um, uh, and uh, that applies to post-it notes. Uh, these guys actually tried to create the strongest right. glue in the world, and they created the worst mm. glue in the world, and it became the post-it notes that we use in the office, uh, down yeah. to um, how Teflon was invented to, to uh, some, uh, I think penicillin also came, came mm -hmm. out of uh, researching uh, some of these uh, things. So it's, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's amazing if you think back historically, the, the number of things that people were against at the time, which now we take for granted. Uh, and I think Stephen Pinker mentioned some of these, like vaccinations. And of course, there are still some people who are against vaccinations. But vaccinations that save huge numbers of lives, but were originally considered to be something dreadful and unnatural. Transfusions, uh, replacing organs with other people's organs. What a terrible, unnatural thing to do. You know, if God had managed to do this, he would have given these extra organs. Anesthesia. Uh, obviously, it's, it was God's intention to punish women for Eve's sin, so women should suffer in childbirth instead of taking painkillers. Um, in vitro fertilization was, you know, people thought was going to produce an army of zombies, and now it's a commonplace procedure. So it's interesting how these things that are very strongly opposed, the same things we're hearing now about the kind of the transhumanist plan, the biohacking plans, uh, we've heard those things before. But once we've, once we've done a little bit, it becomes familiar, and we see that, hey, this in vitro fertilized child who's now walking around seems to have a soul, seems to be perfectly normal. In fact, I'm going to, go, I'm going to marry her next year. Those problems seem to go away. So it's like the people who say, oh, I wouldn't want to live more than 120 years. 
if we knew there was a treatment, if we had a treatment that would let you live indefinitely in perfectly good health, I can pretty much guarantee almost all those people would suddenly change their mind and would probably deny they ever disagree with it. They'd say, oh, no, I always thought that was okay. So, And that is, by the way, something that is now discussed in a very similar way in the, art, uh, in, in the context of artificial intelligence. So it was Stephen uh -huh. Hawkins and a number of scientists around the world who warned us uh, of the dangers of uh, AI uh, if it gets out of hand. Sort of almost like these kind of doomsday scenarios um, from Terminator movies and then, but that people have been growing up with. Um, and uh, I, I mean, of, of course, understand it in a way. If you're on a battlefield and you get killed by a uh, AI-controlled robot, who is responsible? Is it the one who uh, owns the robot? Is it the one who programmed uh, it? Is someone who is remotely uh, somehow involved in moving it around? Is it is it uh, who, who is responsible in in that situation? So, what can you say about the ethical side of these things? So, I, th I guess as humans, we are afraid of losing control with AI in a way it's you can no longer blame anyone specific uh, if it does something wrong you know if a if a car uh, by Google that is autonomous drives over a child who's responsible is it Google is it some is it the programmer um, who, whose responsibility is it in that case now those are perfectly reasonable questions and they certainly have to be addressed and that's whole new areas of law that we have to develop um, I don't have any, you know, I don't want to try and define answers uh, to those very difficult legal questions right now. I think we have to work those out. Um, but there's even some precedent for some of those because, of course, we for centuries have hired people to do work for us. And let's say they do something really wrong, then there's the question, well, are you responsible because you hired the person or are they responsible um, because, you know, they they acted against your, your general orders and you should expect some kind of good judgment from them. That becomes a difficult question. But uh, again, these should not be excuses not to move forward. But in, in the cases of, for instance, uh, Google's cars and self-driving cars, it's probably a good idea for us to be thinking ahead about those things. And of course, a number of people in the transhumanist community are, are doing that. A good example is the uh, Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, where I have some, some good friends there, such as Anders Sandberg, and they spend a lot of time thinking about these issues. So there are some cases where we can do some planning ahead, where we can really see the trends uh, we won't know exactly how these things are going to work or exactly what year this will be happening, but we can see the general trends. And it does give us a chance to think ahead a little bit and work out some kind of ethical guidelines. But those, those are going to be difficult. Yeah, I heard some of these um, uh, discussions being conducted um, in the context of, uh, of open source movement and uh, uh, free software and, and so on in the, in the end of the 90s and the whole hacker, hacker hacker ethic uh, and the movement around it and um, one of the sort of principal idea principal ideas there is let's say of computer systems is that if you want to make a secure computer system you can't obscure it you can't sort of hide the problems that are there but you should open it up so that people can tinker with it people can mm -hmm. play around with it they can hack away and um, try to penetrate uh, 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 and, and get into the system and try to break the system because that's the only way through which you can create a truly uh, secure uh, computer system in a way. Uh, so I, I, I guess it's the same in a way here that um, people should be able to play around with AI. People should be able to uh, 
work with uh, biotechnology and uh, uh, gene manipulation and so on, uh, definitely we're going to have some casualties uh, on the way and, and we, we're going to see some, some problems arising. But humans are pretty good at um, uh, coming up with uh, solutions in those cases to um, create the safe nets, uh, um, a sort of a social conduct almost in some cases, or, or just embedded in the fabric. Of, of the network uh, itself that enables uh, these things to be used in a more safer way. I guess, I mean, we wouldn't have roads unless we had those experiments going on when we first had right. roads. Yeah, no, exactly. We, we create we create new problems with new technologies and, and new methods, but we create new solutions. And overall, I mean, it's pretty obvious. You look at the sweep of human history. Overall, we've done quite well. I mean, people love to gripe and complain about the state of the world, but the fact is, this is the best time in the world ever. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems bizarre to me that seems to be a controversial statement, but it's not. I mean, just seriously go back and look at history at any time in history. When in the past would it be, be better? Even if you're one of the wealthiest people, generally, you know, even the Roman emperors didn't have toilets, they didn't have painkillers, didn't have anesthesia, they didn't have antibiotics. Uh, you know, it's really, this is the best time. There is, so we, that means we've solved more problems than we've created. So people right now are saying, oh, we're gonna destroy ourselves with global warming or this or that or AI. But you know, come on, we've, we've managed so far. There's no point stopping here. Let, let's keep going. Let's solve more problems. We can probably do a better job of foresight. We can look ahead better because it's really a very recent area of knowledge to think about the future. And it's been kind of dismissed as being science fiction, but now people are realizing that a lot of science fiction is becoming true in some form or another. And there are ways of thinking more systematically about future possibilities, creating structured scenarios and planning ahead for those. So we could do a better job, I think, of actually heading off some of the obstacles, some of the things that will go wrong, but we do have to move forward. Um, and we can't, it, we should, it, it's a big mistake to portray the future world as some perfect place where we've solved all the problems because that's not the way it's gonna be. Um, some of them will change things quite drastically. You know, AI does have the potential to transform the way we live completely. Now, a lot of the discussion goes on as if AI is, is one thing over here and we're something separate over there and they're gonna diverge. That's not necessarily the way it will be. It may be that we will actually combine more with that technology and it will be so much it's us versus them. Um, this, it's very hard to find good examinations of you know, realistic extrapolations of the future. One quite nice one I, I would recommend actually um, by an Alcor member, uh, although it's not a book about, about cryonics, this is his first book by Jim Halperin called The Truth Machine, in which he imagines a society in which we've invented a device just you know, basically you can wear on your, on your wrist like this. And when you're talking to someone, if, if they lie to you, it'll light up red. And if they're telling the truth, it will be blue. And if it's if it's kind of something where they, they may be not sure if they're lying, it'll be somewhere in between. And basically, you know, the social pressure becomes such that everybody has to wear this. And he follows through the implications of that and it transforms everything because just imagine that you can't get away with lying ever. Uh, that's gonna that's gonna change things. So it may I mean if you did that right away, it would be a disaster because you you know the police would probably arrest you for all kinds of minor offenses. But then there'd be a lot of pressure to change those laws. So if you know if driving above the ridiculously low speed limits is going to get you in jail every day, because I mean who doesn't go over the speed limit ever? Uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure to change those laws. So you can't just extrapolate one thing. You know, once we tell the truth, we're all going to be in jail because it'll change other things. Hmm. I, I guess uh, it's uh, the Japanese would be definitely excited about that. I just some time ago I read that they have now some wristbands. 
that uh, basically signal to the environment that if you are, uh, uh, you know, straight or homosexual, for example, and uh, it's only a matter of time to switching that to something like that signals to the environment, uh, other other kind of gestures of, uh, of communication that are not non-verbal uh, mm -hmm. and uh, even tell something about the state of your body. What you just mentioned as uh, something where you signal to the environment uh, your current, uh, if you're lying or not. I mean, these kind of things can perhaps be off already be possible to extract just with infrared light by just look at the cameras today uh, can pick up your heart rate <clears throat> from distance and uh, so by going to the infrared range we i can i can see what your heart rate is then i can look at the distance between your heart beats uh, that gives you gives me your heart rate variability that can give, be an indicator of your stress level so if i'm having a negotiation with you I might be able to see if you are bluffing uh, and, and if you're stressed out or, or if you're in a calm state and if I should ask for a race or, or, or um, what I should do. So I, I believe that technology will change human communication and interaction um, greatly. Um, a friend of mine just, um, just wrote an article for, for one of the largest newspapers that, that the most popular uh, sex companion today is the computer. I mean, all the you know, online services and and so on. And as we as we dive deep into virtual reality, and you can do what you whatever you want, um, people might opt for the technological alternative more than other things. And um, uh, so, 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 how would you uh, reflect on on the state of human communication and it, how it gets tangled with technology and I mean, we just walk on the street looking at our phones. We are no longer, you know, in the physical space. We are not in the digital space either. We are just, you know, somewhere in between. We are dodging people as they come by uh, on a uh, on a whim. And it's uh, it has already changed uh, definitely how we interact, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm uh, being an old fogey here, but I actually don't like that. I don't like the way people are locked into their little screens and um, in many situations and can often be quite rude and people on telephones who speak loudly and psychologists tell us that's particularly distracting when you can't hear the other side of the conversation because it gets your brain trying to fill in the gap and it's very hard to focus. So, But many of these issues, I think, are transitional ones that we work out. We, we evolve new norms. Uh, the technology itself evolves. It may be that we won't have you know, handheld devices anymore. We may have contact lenses that project certain things and maybe less intrusive that we can kind of see through them. We'll still see the environment more effectively. So I think we need to work out new protocols. Um, it gets interesting when you start thinking about some of those possibilities. If you're wearing virtual reality contact lenses, uh, there are also kind of augmented reality lenses. You could, for instance, change the way you see certain things. Like. If, if, for instance, you are averse to seeing people who are grotesquely overweight, <laughs> then you might have an algorithm that rewrites that so you don't see them, you know, just wipes them out of existence or makes them look like someone else. Um, hmm. So, or someone, if you know someone, maybe have a colleague or someone you know who has an incredibly annoying voice, <laughs> maybe you'd have that uh, internally modulated to something more pleasant. So that opens up all kinds of interesting possibilities, which is almost the opposite of, of the truth in a way. It's kind of uh, filtering reality. And that will require a lot of new protocols and, and ways of, of dealing with that. And that uh, raises the question, what is reality? I mean, that is what is unreal and what is real. I mean, those are real experiences, right? 
the experiences are real. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about reality on different levels. We can talk about, uh, like I talked about the person with the annoying voice. Well, obviously there is a certain physical reality. There's the actual amplitude of the sound waves and so on. And there's the way it affects our ears. But then, yes, there's the internal reality of what we actually perceive and, and the emotional effects it has on that and the hormones and, and uh, neurochemistry it releases in us is a separate reality. So, um, yeah, we have to disentangle those different parts of what reality is and the physical, the virtual, the internal biochemical uh, so reality is a little bit complicated and becoming more so. So people can, in the future, they can pretty much wake up in the morning and they can decide what type of reality I'm going to immerse myself into today. And it's uh, it's something that you can use technology for. So you don't have to use medication. You don't have to mm -hmm. use sleep deprivation, uh, uh, meditation, drugs, whatever. You can, you can just mm -hmm. go on the street with a pair of... Uh, uh, virtual reality contact lenses and you can have whatever experiences you like um, that's pretty wild I mean why would you travel anymore because you can experience uh, the the beautiful gardens on your backyard uh, any 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 kind of um, human creation uh, being a digital or physical could be experienced um, through your senses in a in a in a in a, in a full way. I mean, we don't know yet how to generate things like smells and so on that are very important in these kind of experiences. But uh, I, I think it's only a matter of time when we have have some devices that can also emulate all mm -hmm. types of sensory input. Um, another idea uh, that was brought up. Before you go on that, I should just just to sure. add to that point. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the, the author now, but uh, author went on to do a series of books with kind of transhumanist themes. He, in his first story, he had a detective who he had a um, uh, some kind of cognitive implant. And the way he explained it was that the power of this implant was, wasn't that it expanded his intellectual capacity necessarily, it's, it's to let him focus. And especially to those of us who have a hard time necessarily focusing all the time, that could be very powerful. That if you could put yourself in a certain mode, you can say, okay, today is a day where I really need to write and I don't want to be distracted by emails or phone calls or by sexual urges or by food or anything. I need to write today. If you could just put yourself in that mode, how, how powerful would be that? Now, some people can do that and they're lucky. I mean, I, I'm not one of those people. It takes me a long time to get into that writing mode. Um, you know, some of us... Some of us are not distracted by sex. Some of us find that very distracting. We walk around places and we see too many attractive people and our mind wanders off. You know, maybe there's certain situations where we want to just switch that off. Other cases, we might want to amplify it. I don't know, but hmm. I think actually even something simple like being able to select from our existing emotional states and physiological responses could be very powerful before we even get to the point of expanding that range and expanding um, the ability to sense things in, in remote locations. So you're saying right now, we can't really smell, if we can send out robots to remote locations and it can kind of scan the environment with the camera and the sounds, we can't really smell that very well. I think they tried smellorama, a smellorama in cinemas and you know, it was very crude, but eventually probably you can have a full range of virtual senses. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. So, 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 so basically, what becomes even more important is your intentions. So what you uh, load your intentions with, what you want to do, those things 
can be possible like i mean i the, the, what you just explained about some you know devices or whatever that could put you in the state of focus this is probably why a lot of people are interested in nootropics like students in the in school if they want to pass their exams want to read for it uh, that's probably the reason why they take some of these supplements uh, just to be able to just have this idea at least that i might be able to focus better with something and um, i mean that's also the reason why people drink alcohol they think they, they 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 could relax or escape something or or just have a little bit of fun between work so uh, it's interesting um i, I mean this this almost reminds me of uh, like psych psychedelic experiences in a way it's uh um, different uh, modalities of experience that we go through uh, being it sexual drive or, or, or just, you know, the urge to write or whatever. And you can just wake up in the morning, you can choose what kind of experience you're going to have today. And uh, 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 it's going to be extremely powerful. Now, there is definitely going to be people who are going to be opposing this that um, uh, are conservative enough uh, that uh, uh, they think that this is not in your hands. I mean, uh, this should be controlled. Uh, this is not okay. It's not part of, you know, human experience of things just happening. It's uh, um, when when things become almost surgically possible to control and uh, uh, choose the direction where things are going. Um, it, it's almost like in politics, people, given the freedom, they will only read the stuff that they already believe in. Uh, so they will, uh, even on open internet, if you have a specific political sense, you will, you will sort of gravitate towards the stuff that you already agree with. And uh, even though internet would enable um, uh, debate and alternative viewpoints, uh, would this be like a new form of entertainment? Sort of like what people do anyway today. You know, they watch television for six hours a day and uh, it's it's releasing the neurotransmitters they like for feeling that they uh, are not lonely because there is this TV anchor and there is this soap TV show and uh, the dopamine that is released from the experience they experience through the television. Now this becomes direct experience and, and they, they can sort of escape um, the cruelty or, or, or the painful experiences and, and emotions of the day. Um, would people choose to do that? Well, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a very hard question to answer. I think that there's an obvious danger that if you can choose your internal states, then you might become essentially like a, like a crackhead or a meth addict or someone who takes heroin, where you're essentially reinforcing the same experience, the same feeling over and over. Uh, but obviously in those cases, because it has real chemical effects, you're doing yourself a lot of damage. So this but is like also, digital heroin in a way. It, it could be. And that could be, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say that's, that's something you can't do because it's someone else's life. They can choose to do that if they wish, as long as they don't expect other people to support them. You know, if they, if they still have productive periods of their time, then who am I to say that they can't spend a lot of time doing that? But I would hope, that, on the other hand, that... One reason why we do that now, one reason why we take, why we overdrink, why we 
take too many tranquilizers or other drugs, why we watch too much crappy reality TV, is because we are so stressed, because we haven't, because our biochemistry is out of whack, because we're living in an environment that we didn't really evolve for. So, but what if we can hack that? What if we can improve our internal processes? So as we go through the day, we're kind of gliding through it with ease. And at the end, you know, the end of the day, whenever that is, we don't really have the need for that kind of, you know, to drink tall beers or tall glasses of wine or to watch six hours of television. That's gone because we've had a good day. And every day is a good day. We've been in a flow state pretty much all the time. And we get to choose, you know, whether that flow state is a writing day, whether it's a day of, of great sex, whether it's a day of hiking, whatever it is. So maybe it'll have the opposite effect. It's, it's kind of hard to say. So yeah, I, I really uh, hope it's going to be a new renaissance coming and that all this technology will be sort of like new new age of enlightenment in a way that would enable people to actually focus on creativity and uh, art and producing something that we as humans are very unique and capable for um, one thing I, i think is really important to emphasize you know in this discussion you talked about those who disapprove of this but they will often turn out to be the same people who say well you shouldn't get to choose you know what mental state to be in because you're not responsible enough We, the experts, the bioethicists on the government committee, uh, you know, George Bush's his, uh, committee, who is against all transhumanist ideas, oh, we should get to make those choices. We should make you good citizens. We should make you want to vote. We should make you want to be responsible. That's where things get frightening. That's why I'm a very strong advocate of the principle of morphological freedom, where we get to choose that. Even though, yes, yeah, some people will screw things up. Some people will mess things up and get it wrong. Uh, it's a lot worse. History shows it's a lot worse when centralized large power blocks get control of any kind of control technology like that. So we've, we've got to really push not just for these technologies, but for keeping them in individual hands. Yeah, it's interesting that now in the U.S. you have this uh, transhumanist party by Sultan Istvan. And so these things are picking up steam in a way. Uh, it reminds me of a um, science fiction book actually by Bruce Sterling from 85 called Schismatrix. Uh-huh. In Schismatrix, there is like the societies split into kind of two directions. Uh, uh, the more, biological ones and the more cyborg. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shapers who are sort of like the biohackers, the group that alters uh-huh. the body through genetic modification, specialized mental training, like. Uh, Uh, mindfulness and then there is the mechanists who are almost like the quantified selfers that, that modifies the body through computer software cybernetics and external alterations and mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 the senior mechanists sort of the highest form are wireheads who live in permanent virtual reality who want to upload themselves to the matrix um, it's sort of interesting where the the world can um, go from here because if you think of the people who we chose to power were those people who we expected to be well informed um the whole the whole idea of uh, of having a parliament really is is that you have well informed um representatives uh who are informed by the best among us and uh, uh, when you have enough of well-informed people mathematically they will have over 50% likelihood of uh, making right decisions in, in situations. And if you have 10, 20, 100 of them, uh, th- that will diverge towards 100% accuracy in making decisions. But what if those people are not well informed? What if they are manipulated? What if um, the world is too complex? Uh, 
the issues are too complex that they cannot be well informed. Uh, they can't follow their time and they're too um, uh, tangled in, in, in getting their next year term uh, extended. Then they are not very well informed and the more you have them, they will actually have less than 50% likelihood of uh, uh, of making a right decision when you put 100 people there, you, you, get, you get to zero. So probably we will definitely need um, people to represent us who are uh, extended, uh, almost like with six senses, that uh, they're an extension of the technology that we have created, the cloud services, the, the vast amount of information and database we have, and are supported by artificial intelligence and AI, uh, to make the decisions to dive into issues and, and, and solve the problems that we face. Yeah, if I wasn't so busy doing what I am doing, that would be the area I'd be working on because I think it's critical to improve social decision-making processes. Um, I, you know, you talk about the, the uh, transhumanist party. Well, I don't personally think that working within the party system is going to work very well. I think it's a broken system. and. I, I don't know whether Zoltan will have a good effect or bad. I'm not sure yet. I'll, I'll be actually debating him on Reddit um, in a couple of weeks, and we'll get to talk about some of this stuff. But I would like to see more development of ideas like Robert Hansen's idea futures, um, which are being used very well in, in certain areas, basically where people can set a proposition and they can bet on it. And uh, that produces a consensus that is far more accurate than other prediction methods. In fact, a company like HP used it to predict printer sales, and they found that, that the prediction markets, where anybody could participate, produce results much more accurate than their best experts. And it's, it's been very well used in, um, I think, the, the Hollywood Stock Exchange, I think it's called, is used to predict the opening take for a movie, and it does better than, than you know, any of the experts. Now, if we could somehow pressure governments into using methods like these, kind of proven methods, that uh, show better decision-making capabilities and require them to use it, which is part of the, the proactionary principle, by the way, is to use you know, evidence-based procedures for producing better decisions, that would make a big difference. So rather than just hoping that we'll get good candidates in, I think we need to think about actually changing that whole process and basically having high social pressure to make them use the tools that will produce that. And that way they can also, you know, they don't have to bluff and bluster and appeal to emotion so much. They can actually say, well, look, this system, which is being tested and shows good results, is saying we should do this. You know, despite my constituency not being so much in favor, maybe we should pay attention. And it might take away some of that pressure to play and panda to the crowd. Mm. Oh, <clears throat> thanks for bringing up the prediction markets. That's the, definitely a interesting form of uh, decision-making. Um, there has been a lot of um, these types of experiments with with crowdsourcing and, and other ways of, uh, of, of looking at how we can uh, um, sort of arrive at a certain answer. Uh, slightly differently than using expert panels. Uh, experts have have their weak points, definitely. Um, so um, uh, maybe this is a good opportunity also to just revisit a little bit your uh, proactionary principle, and um, if you could ponder a little bit on 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 that and um, what does it consist of? So how to be proactive? Yeah, well, the proactionary principle. Um, this really came out of, you know, I, I was reading about the precautionary principle, which has just several different versions and has actually been written into the European Constitution. And there's different versions of it, but essentially it says that if some new technology or production, production process 
could have uh, could cause harm, especially if it was irreversible. However, you are to determine irreversibility, then uh, it must not be allowed. Essentially, and this is just a disastrous way of trying to make decisions. It basically will stop all progress. So we held an online summit. Um, uh, I forget what it's called now, but we, we had an online summit including people like Marvin Minsky and Ray Kurzweil and others. And out of that, I produced the proactionary principle, which is an alternative and a bit more subtle. It's not as not, it's not as simple as one line. It basically has uh, seven or ten sub principles, but it's really saying that let's take as a given that progress is good overall. Progress is good. We shouldn't be trying to stop it. We should be helping it. But yes, we need to take precautions. But we cannot just rely on, on uh, even self-proclaimed experts or even real experts because they get things wrong. We need processes put in place that have been uh, that have actually been tested. There's the only way of knowing whether they work or not because there's a lot of expert methods that don't work and a lot of experts that really don't know what's going to happen. They may be the expert in their field. That doesn't mean they know anything very much. But there are methods and we can devise more of them. Uh, it's saying to the extent that we know what those are, let's use those uh, and not rely on public opinion and, and pressure and that kind of thing. So it's really got a, a whole s sort of set of principles. And if I hadn't taken my current job, I, I would have been working that into a, a workbook for companies and governments as to how to actually implement those ideas and, and work to get those put into practice. So basically, it's a way of, of saying, let's start with the premise that progress is good, and then let's structure our decision making according to the best available evidence uh, to make the best decisions. That actually brings to my mind <clears throat> uh, an interesting case I read from uh, the work of Stafford Beer. Stafford Beer used to be, um, uh, I think he was a British cybernetic, uh, cyberneticist. Uh, he was ex especially um, interested and focused on cybernetic management. And um, in, 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 in Chile, in the 70s, uh, or it was in the end of 60s, they were working on um, creating a completely new type of way of running a government uh, on, under the power of Salvador, Salvador Allende, which, uh, who, by the way, was thrown over. Um, but what they were creating was this kind of room. It was sort of like straight from uh, uh, some kind of sci-fi sci movie. There was like chairs that... Um, uh, where decision makers would sit, but they, those were not politicians, but scientists from different fields. And um, they would have a conversation. Uh, on the chairs, they would have buttons uh, from which they could um, uh, basically press a button to get their turn to speak. And when they speak, they wouldn't just rely on rhetoric, but data. And the data would be real time. That uh, and, and the whole cybernetic thing would be connected to um, the country's media and factories and, and and people sitting in front of their televisions, they could press buttons about their feelings of uh, where things are going. And, and they could use that real-time data uh, to explain things, you know, press a button and show, hey, this is this or that. And, and then the other guy would press a button. Ah, I, I disagree with you. Take a look at this data. And, and the walls around them would basically project the data coming in. Uh, sort of almost like in a minority report kind of fashion. And on the chairs, they would have, on the other side, they would have uh, ashtray for cigars. And on the other side, they would have a little spot for um, uh, a pint, basically. <laughs> and uh, th this was actually something they built um, uh, and designed. And uh, they applied Bayesian filtering that we nowadays use for spam filtering uh, to the data coming in. And 
in the end of the 60s kind of computers, uh, they were actually trying to build this thing. Uh, so, so that was sort of early, early approach to try to create this kind of like cybernetic kind of government that is able to tap into data and make decisions um, in a slightly different way than we do them today. Um, now, what we don't want is a system that, uh, and there was a novel based on this uh, by a quite well-known writer, um, where he's essentially got a, a little earpiece that links into a computer system that gives him instant feedback on what he's saying. So even as he's giving a speech, he can kind of adjust his speech to reflect the reaction he's getting. That's not what we want because that's that's just a way of becoming more demagogic. So really, we, you know, we want more what you're talking about, which is a structured system for analyzing expert opinion, uh, something kind of like the Delphi method, which can can work and it depends on, on how it's done, but that's a way of filtering expert opinion um, and giving it revisions and coming up with a better answer. Um, we need a lot more work in, in those kind of areas. And then we have to find a way of getting politicians <laughs> and government agencies to use these things um, or else firing them. But that's going to be the tough part. Well, <clears throat> uh, looking at our discussion here, I guess there is still a lot of work to do. So let's assume that there's still a lot of things to, to do. And I would rather wake up, you know, 100 years from now. Uh, but I guess my biological body might not live that long. And you are into cryonics and uh, the Alcor Life Extension Foundation and uh, and can you can you sort of open up a little bit that uh, uh, so so why would I preserve myself uh, and and wake myself up you know when uh, basically uh, medical science is advanced enough so that I can bring myself back into a world that might be completely transformed with all these things you're talking about well, the way I look at it is that cryonics is just an extension of emergency medicine. Basically, we come along at the point where today's doctors and medicine say, look, there's nothing much more we can do for you. We kind of throw up our hands in despair. We've tried everything. Uh, we could maybe revive you temporarily for a few minutes or a few hours. You could be miserable. So we're just going to let you go. We're going to call you dead. It's a bit of an arbitrary point. Hmm. What we're saying is that turn that person over to us. We're going to do all kinds of complicated things that we'll get into to stop the patient getting worse. We're going to stabilize their cells. We're going to essentially cryopreserve them at super low temperatures after protecting the cells to prevent freezing damage. They can then wait. It doesn't matter whether it's a year or a century. They're essentially going to be in the same condition. There's no metabolic activity. And that means that they can benefit from far more advanced technology that fix whatever killed them, whether it was a, a you know, a blown uh, blood vessel in the brain or a heart valve or cancer or, or the aging process itself. So it's really just saying, if you're enjoying life, why let your crappy body de decide when you go? You forget that choice. Now, it's not about immortality or living forever. It's about giving you the choice of how long you live. Hmm. Um, and, and so it's not just a, it's not just a, a guess that this might work. You know, there's good evidence that using the procedures we use, looking at animal tissue that's being preserved under similar conditions, looking at uh, synaptic tissue, for instance, we can see the connections are intact. And everything we know about memory storage and personality suggests that, at least under good conditions, we are preserving that. And you're still there. You're just you know, potential waiting to come back. Hmm. Uh, so, so, so what are you saying is that a sort of uh, emergency kind of medicine, uh, instead of putting me into coma for 15 years and hoping the best, uh, you, you basically put me in deep freeze for 100 years and uh, wait for the technology to develop so that uh, I can actually be saved? Well, the 15-year the coma option isn't really an option, really, because you're still going to be aging. 
even if we could put you in a coma without killing you, which you know, in, in most cases of terminal conditions isn't going to be possible, you'd still be aging. And so, uh, you know, if you're dying of old age, that wouldn't help. But with cryopreservation, we're, we're literally stopping all biochemical activity. Once we get below about minus 120 degrees C, nothing is happening anymore. So you can really wait indefinitely, even thousands of years, but I don't think that'll be necessary. But the way I think of it is that when we say that someone is dead today, we're, we're actually wrong. And, and I think you mentioned, uh, or maybe it was before we started recording my dissertation, I had a whole chapter on the concept of death. And you realize that you know, what we say dead has changed over time. So before 1960, for instance, if someone you know, was, was nearby you and they stopped breathing, their heart stops beating, we would have checked their pulse and we would have said, oh, this person's dead. And we would have buried them or cremated them. Today, we don't do that because we have things like uh, CPR, defibrillation, we bring them back to life. And in most cases, they're fine. So we can say, well, 50 years ago, were they, were they really dead? Well, not by today's standards. And so the point is that by the future standards, people we call dead today are not dead either. They will be if we don't do something to stop them getting worse. And that's where cryonics comes in, really, is to, is to stop things getting worse. But it's not something we want to do. I do not want to be cryopreserved. I'd rather not die in the first place. And I'm very interested in health and longevity, doing whatever I can to live longer. I'm hoping there'll be enough funding and effort into life extension research that, you know, before I get too old, that'll slow down and stop and reverse, and I won't need to be cryopreserved. But I might need it, so that, that's really why I'm taking over running the organization to make sure it's here when I need it. What does that do to society in a way? Because, I mean, does it make any sense to? If it doesn't make any sense to age anymore. I would not get old. There's not this kind of natural cycle that we go through in life. Um, if everyone would basically be stuck at tw 25 years or whatever age they choose, uh, what happens to generations, um, and uh, and so on. I mean, I guess there is a lot, a lot to human experience that comes with aging. Yeah. The answer is I don't know, but I look forward to finding out. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, if you think about it, you know, things have already changed now. In that, for you know, most most places, most societies, over most of history, people generally didn't live very long. Now, quite often, we have you know, many, many generations living. That, that's already changing the way family structures work. Uh, used to be people would be put to work at the age of five or six, and now you know that we consider outrageous. Now you've got to go through eighteen years of education or twenty-one years of education. So those kind of things obviously will change. I think there will be a time when we consider someone who's 30 years old to be you know, basically still not really responsible <laughs> and then have a bit of a different status. Things will change like that, but I think we'll handle those changes. Hmm. Um, so yeah, well, you won't better tell how old someone is by looking at them. But uh, once you start talking to them, I think you'll get a sense of you know, what kind of depth there is there and there'll be other ways of telling. Um, so things will certainly be different. How exactly? I'm not sure. There are issues that have to be addressed, like uh, you know, people are worried about gerontocracy. What won't the the top leaders of the world just stay at the top and uh, people will calcify? Well, no, not, not if we have term limits, not if we can throw them out, not if we can enforce those changes, which we already do to a certain degree. So um, anyway, th those are if there are problems like that, uh, I'm quite happy to deal with them rather than be dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seems right. Like yeah. It's a better alternative. Uh, to me, I mean, it's it's not really the point to live forever, but live a quality life. And if that means that when I'm older, I'm still able to do some physical activities uh, as if uh, I'm, I'm young and uh, I, I would be able to solve problems and, and work on things that I love without uh, having issues with memory 
and um, attention and uh, energy and so on. That would be fantastic. So, I mean, all of us have different reasons for these things. And uh, um, I guess to summarize our discussion in some way, uh, it, it's not certainly uh, an easy, easy, easy uh, topic that is free of uh, really hard ethical questions. But in the end, if we just look at what individuals may want in their lives uh, to experience uh, as many different things, uh, perhaps uh, live a quality life and uh, also as the human enterprise create things that and go beyond that no other uh, other life form has gone, at least on this planet, uh, that would be feasible. And it's, it's um, absolutely at least possible. So why not try? Uh, to do that and, and make that into um, something you live uh, and breed, basically. And uh, we don't know enough yet, and definitely as we tinker with these things, uh, some people will die just like in a, um, bodybuilding. You know, there's always this guy who took too much of that supplement or tried a technique that uh, didn't work out. Um, mm -hmm. But in the end, there's always someone who comes through and... Uh, uh, has uh, stands on the shoulders of the others and um, uh, provides something to the, the next generations. So, uh, well, I'd like to... One thing to keep in mind, if I just very briefly interject there, uh, a lot of people, one thing they don't take into consideration is it's kind of, it's just appalling right now that over time, you know, our wisdom goes up. We learn more and more over time, we, you know, we figure things out, but our physical health and mental health is going down at the same time. Mm. That's kind of a crazy, ridiculous situation. What if we could fix that? What if we could beat the aging process, uh, or if you don't make it come back through cryopreservation, and then you keep that wisdom, you keep that learning, you enhance it through biohacking, through, you know, all the additions we can make, so, and you maintain that vibrancy of youth, you maybe even enhance it beyond what you ever had. So you've got increasing wisdom and increasing physical vitality. What kind of world would that be? Yeah, I mean, isn't, isn't it sort of ironic that uh, we first invented technology to make our lives easier, and as a result, we probably, for example, today, we eat the worst food ever, and we also eat the best food ever. We have two options, and um, also our lifestyles. I mean, we can live the best possible lifestyle ever anyone has ever before us lived and you can have the worst possible lifestyle and you can die uh, of obesity and heart disease as a young kid so um, i really do hope that this technology sort of is our savior in a way that it it will enable us uh, to take a good look at ourselves. if it means it's you know some watch on your hand that tells you stand up you've been sitting too long um, maybe it is some uh, uh, virtual reality glasses that help you to do your work while you are moving instead of just sitting in front of your computer all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Whatever it is that liberates us uh, from the negative side effects of technological progress, that would be awesome. And if it really makes us more conscious about how to use technology in a, in a way that is actually beneficial to ourselves and to our environment as well, I'm a big believer, I'm optimistic in, in technology and its um, its ability to uh, take us to a new level. And there's a whole other area which you can probably have to touch on, but just to mention briefly that um, one problem we have, I mean, you said the technology itself can be helpful, but the ways we apply it is obviously critical. And we've talked about social mechanisms for better decision making, 
But on an individual level, we have a big problem in that we've evolved this little three pound piece of meat that's not really optimized for the modern world. It's not very good at making complex decisions. Well, we need to start thinking about re-engineering that. We don't have the tools really to do that right now, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. Um, I think we can make better decisions by, for instance, interconnecting the cognitive and emotional areas of the brain more deeply. Right now, they're not very well connected. But, um, we tend to, you know, because we evolve essentially to respond to threats uh, by, you know, seeing something, feeling something, it makes us think, run. Uh, so we have, we get fearful all the time. We get anxiety in inappropriate times. We don't think things through carefully. So one day it may be feasible to actually restructure the brain, put in new pathways. So doing that along with better social decision-making mechanisms, maybe we'll really start to improve the world and solve some problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that brings to my mind, uh, one thought that Amal Grafstra, uh, put forward. He, he spoke at Biohacker Summit. Uh, last year, um, he invented the uh, implantable RFID, RFID chip. Um, but anyway, so he said that maybe we could in the future have new types of sensory experiences. So right now our mobile phones are hijacking our existing senses like with vibration or sound, different kind of uh, alerts, notifications that basically hijack our hearing or our sight or our, our sense of touch. Uh, what if we could have just, you know, very subtle feelings, just like, you know, the temperature in my bedroom is now too high. Maybe I want to go and adjust that or that my friends are uh, two miles uh, away uh, and are approaching where I am. Um, and without having to pick up the phone, without having to do anything that would disturb the environment when someone picks up a phone or gets a sms or text message now what if we could have these kind of sensory experience so then anything that can be compu com computed um, and transmitted as information could be brought to you with these kind of subtle feelings just like they have actually created now uh, this type of like a, a leg kind of band that goes around your your feet uh, that has magnets and uh, it, it basically uh, vibrates uh, to the direction where north is so you will always know after a couple of months you know you no longer pay attention to the sensation but you start to your brain basically starts to understand that as direction so you always know where north is. oh i need that i have no sense of direction i need that yeah yeah so <laughs> new types of sensory experiences um but um anyway we could talk for a long time and i i think uh we will we will definitely continue this conversation go deeper even at the biohacker summit uh it's going to be in helsinki 23rd to 24th of september um max moore is going to be there uh it's going to be a phenomenal event uh, we have a a lot of interesting people coming from all around the world over there. I see now signups of people from about 15 countries. Uh, also in the att attendee list, there's going to be a lot of interesting people over there. So most, you're, you're, everyone who ever is listening to this, you're most welcome. So check out biohackersummit.com. Now, Max, um, I like to ask people like, you know, what would be like your life lessons? So if you would pick up, huh. pick up a couple of things that you would teach to your children or grandchildren or or whatever yourself uh, when you were younger, what would those things be um, uh, that have been helpful to you uh, in terms of just thinking about uh, living a better life? Oh my goodness, you're putting me on the spot here to boil it down to a couple of 
principles like that. Uh, just ask me again when I give my talk at the conference, I'll come up with better answers. But um, I suppose one critical thing in my experience is don't worry too much about what other people think. Pursue your own line of thinking. Read widely. Don't just listen to any one source. You, as you mentioned, a lot of people read the same new source or reinforce their opinion. Don't do that. Re deliberately put yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable, where you look at different perspectives and really consider them. Um, don't, don't worry about opinion at all. Look at evidence. When people are arguing with you or you're reading something you agree or disagree with, ask yourself, what is the actual evidence here? Let me check out the evidence. Because people will be very persuasive, but that's a relevance to reality. Look at the evidence. Um, explore. Explore different areas of life. Try different things. Don't get stuck in a rut. Um, take good care of yourself. Right? For, it doesn't matter how young you are. There are plenty of kids in really bad shape right now. That's critical to everything. To anything you might want to do in the future, you're going to do it better. Uh, you may not be able to do it at all because you may be dead if you don't take care of yourself. Take good care of yourself. And again, evidence is very important in learning what that means because Clearly, a lot of the official medical authorities and what they've told us about health has been wrong <laughs> because we, we're a very unhealthy population there. So think for yourself. So uh, on the spot, those are some of the core things that I would come up with. Oh, absolutely beautiful. I would definitely write down those things into my life's manual. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Max, Max Moore, for joining for, for this interview. It was Thank you, Timmy. I appreciate it. It was it was infinite pleasure, and uh, see you in Helsinki, Finland, uh, in September. I look forward to it very much. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much. Take care.